Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to the Pastor's Study. Today we're going to tackle some very difficult questions that non-believers ask us Christians. And before I get into these questions, though, let me just say this. When you're talking to unbelievers about their hard questions, be gentle, be nice. The Reverend Sung Myung Moon died recently. He was born in 1920 in Korea. He claimed to be the second coming of Christ. He wasn't. But years ago, I go to a church to do a, a Bible study, and here's a very strange man, young man there who had just left the Moon Church. And when another person in the Bible study heard that he just left the Unification Church, the guy uses his Bible like a machine gun. Don't you know the Reverend Moon can't be the second coming? Don't you know it says Jesus is coming down in the clouds the next time? Don't you? And just uses the Bible like a machine gun. And I'm kind of praying under my breath, please, Lord, get this guy out of here. And finally he left. And I sat down with this uh, Mooney and I said, well, you know, tell me what happened. And he came out and just told me his story of what he went through at the hands of that cult and, and the group. And, and I just listened to him. And then at the very end of it, I shared about Christ and how to be saved. So before we get into these difficult questions, do what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness if perhaps God will grant that they will be brought away from the snare of the devil. So before we get into these questions, let's just take a minute and pray. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit will now show us how to respond to difficult questions we get. And Lord, these are things Christians need to know about and unbelievers too. So Father, just guide us now as we go through these questions. In Jesus' name, amen. Question number one that we can get from an unbeliever, how do you know that God exists? And there's basically four ways. The first way is called the argument from design. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the universe, the creation, the design of the universe. And when you look at creation, you realize there was a designer to this thing. <laughs> Years ago, I was on a plane next to a doctor. He finds out I'm a preacher, and he says to me, I became a Christian in med school. And I said, what converted you? And he said, when I started to study the human body and how well-designed it is, I had to conclude, there's a designer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here's a man and his friend are walking along the shore of a beach. They find a beautiful gold stopwatch. Uh, the one friend picks it up and, and the, he pops up the back of in all these gears and, isn't this an incredibly designed watch? Whoever put this watch together knew what he was doing. And his friend said, oh, I don't think anybody made that watch. Well, of course somebody made, look how, in, well, no, no, I think after millions of years of the water pounding the, the sand that somehow that uh, watch came to be. Well, you know, even an atheist wouldn't say that. But when it comes to the universe, which is more, more complex, more in, 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 intricately designed than a watch, they'll say it about the universe. So the first way we know there's a God is 
This is an incredibly designed universe. Just look at the human body and how it works. A second argument for the existence of God is called the internal witness. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, that God has written his law on everybody's heart. Deep down, everybody knows it's wrong to steal, to kill, commit adultery, etc. I think it was, was C.S. Lewis who told this story. Here's an atheist on the bus. Somebody gets off the bus, and so he's going to sit down, and the rude guy behind him slips in behind him and steals the atheist's seat on the bus. The atheist gets mad. C.S. Lewis's point is, why does the atheist get mad? There's no God. There's no right. There's no wrong. I mean, who says it's wrong to steal if there is no God and there is no right and wrong? But he said, but that atheist does get mad <laughs> because God has written his law on everybody's heart. So the second reason we know there's a God is the moral law that's on our hearts, where did that come from? A third argument for the existence of God is the argument of cause and effect. I mean, if we human beings are rather intelligent, doesn't it seem right that whoever created us is as at least as intelligent as we are? I mean, if we have a mind, doesn't it make sense that whoever made us has a bigger mind, not some blind process that doesn't know what it's doing, but a mind behind the universe? And then the fourth way we know there's a God, and this is kind of the big one, revelation. God steps down through the clouds and has revealed himself through this book and mainly through Jesus Christ. Now, let me quickly explain this to you. When I was at college, for a while, I majored in philosophy. And we had a great philosophy professor, an unbeliever, but boy, could he teach and the first week, he taught us about Plato from 500 B.C., the Greek philosopher. And at the end of the week, we were all Platonists. Second week, he taught us about Aristotle, the student of Plato who tore down everything Plato taught and came up with his own system of truth. And we were all Aristotelians. And then the third week, I think he did Descartes. And then the next week, Hume and then Kant. And by the time I had hair back then, I was pulling my hair out by the end of that class. Why? Because here's the brightest man in human history, and they all came up with different ideas of what truth is. Well, then I went to my uh, religion professor, and he told me about the theology of Karl Barth, uh, renowned as the greatest theologian in the 20th century from Switzerland, and he explained Karl's, Karl Barth's view of revelation. Now, follow this. When mankind fell in the garden, our mind fell with us. When we became sinners in the garden, it didn't just clog up our interpersonal relationships, it clogged up our mind. So because of sin, we finite sinful creatures can't know the infinite holy God unless God steps down through the clouds and reveals himself. That's why you have all these great philosophers who all disagree, because we need something that will get us beyond our finite sinful mind into the infinite. That happened when God became a man in Jesus Christ, and it happened through the giving of the New Testament. And you know what I did? I quit philosophy and started to major in Bible. It changed my life. So how do you know there's a God? The design of the universe, the law of cause and effect, the inner witness that we have written on our heart, and mainly, God has revealed himself through Christ and through this book. Let's ask question number two today. 
isn't Jesus a myth? Is there any proof that he ever really lived at all? Well, there's some good response to that. The New Testament contains 27 documents, the Gospels and the Epistles. They were all written within about 60 years of Christ's death. When people say, oh, the Bible was written 100 years later, hundreds of years after that, no, 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 you don't know your history. Even atheist scholars will admit the New Testament was pretty much completed within 60 years of Jesus' death. And on top of that, the extra-biblical evidence is weighty. By extra-biblical, we mean the references to Christ outside the Bible in ancient pagan Roman Empire. Let me just quickly quickly take you through a few of them. Uh, there's too much to go through, but Suetonius, writing 120 AD, this is a pagan Roman, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome on account of the riots in which they were indulging at the instigation of Crestus, which was a uh, popular misspelling of the name of Christ. And punishment was inflicted by Nero on the Christians, a body of people addicted to a novel and mischievous superstition, the Christian religion. Tacitus, writing about 115 A.D., Christians are a class of men loathed for their vices. They got their name from Christ, who was executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. New Testament, but that's not New Testament, that's, but that's what the New Testament says. Pliny, writing 112 A.D., Christians sing a hymn to Christ as if to God. And then, um, one more, Lucian, 115 A.D., Christ is the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult, Christianity, into the world. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, Christ, persuaded them they were all brothers, one of another, after they had transgressed once for all but by denying the Greek gods and worshiping the crucified sophist himself, Christ. Uh, so, you know, there we have early, early, early on. We also have even earlier, Josephus, an unbelieving Jew, says this about Christianity, and he was born 37 A.D., he said, Annas convened the judges of the Sanhedrin, brought before them a man named James, who was the brother of Christ, that's the New Testament teaching, the so-called Christ, to be stoned. So I, I won't go through the rest, there's a bunch more, but the non-biblical early pagan references to Christ teach Jesus lived, he lived in Palestine in the first century, he had disciples, he did miracles, some people thought he was a magician, but he, even the pagans admit he did miracles, and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, just like the New Testament says. So if people say, well, there really never existed Christ, they don't know their non-biblical history. And, and I like what one man said about this, follow this quote, it would never enter anyone's head to ask whether Jesus lived unless, before asking the question, the mind had been darkened by the wish that he had not lived. In other words, people don't want to believe Jesus lived. Why? Because they're following uh, the evidence? No, they don't want to bow the knee. So it's easier to say, well, he never existed. But you can't do that <laughs> if you want to follow the evidence. Next difficult question unbelievers ask. I believe Jesus existed and was a great man, a wonderful teacher, but isn't it a bit much to say he's the Son of God? And you get this. Uh, this is kind of the way of people patting Jesus on that. Well, I, I think Jesus existed. I'll admit that. He was a wonderful teacher, but I don't think he was God. I love C.S. Lewis's response to that. This will take just a minute, but would you carefully listen to my favorite paragraph from C.S. Lewis? Quote, 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Did you follow the logic of that? If I say I am God, well, either I am, and you should worship me, or I'm a nut, or I'm a liar, but in no sense am I a nice guy, because nice guys, good men, don't call themselves God and lead people astray. Next question unbelievers can ask. Doesn't the sincere Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu worship the same God as the Christian only under a different name? How can you say Jesus is the only way? Well, this is something called the law of contradiction. We all live by it. Either it's raining out or it's not raining out, but it can't be raining out and not raining out at the same time. It's called the law of contradiction. We live like this. Follow this. Christians believe Jesus is God. Muslims believe Jesus is not God. For me, you're a heretic if you say he isn't God. For a Muslim, you're a heretic if you say he is God. Well, okay, we can't both be right. Maybe the Muslims are right and the Christians are wrong, but we can't both be right because of the law of contradiction. Some people try to, well, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the only way to heaven. So let me just read a quote from J. Oswald Smith. He said this, People should know better when they tell me that the heathen are better off as they are and that their own religion satisfy them. Is that true? If, the, if so, then we certainly should leave them alone. But are they happy as they are? I am thinking of the Muslim in Algeria who slashed his head again and again with a large knife until the blood flowed freely, then took newspapers and plastered them at the top of his head, finally striking it all with a match. He did this to lay up treasure in his heaven. I am thinking of the Aborigines in Australia. When a baby is born, the witch doctor must find a victim somewhere, so he seizes on the newborn infant, and in spite of the mother's protests, he fills its little mouth with sand until the baby chokes to death. Why does he do it? His, his pagan religions tell him the spirits must be satisfied. I am thinking of Africans who kill their twin babies, uh, believing one of them to be demon-possessed. I am thinking of Hindu widows, and this was true until the 1930s. I am thinking of Hindu widows in India. Because of their religion, they have to lie down beside their husbands when they have died and allow themselves to be burned alive with their husbands. I am thinking, and he goes on and on, but basically he says, until you, my friend, are willing to accept these religions and their practices, you ought to be ashamed to say that the heathen are better off as they are. Christianity alone offers them life abundant, a life that satisfies the heart. Let's do one more. Sometimes an unbeliever will say, how do you reconcile your faith with the fact that the Bible is so full of errors. And, and here, you, you got to be gentle, but you do have the right to say, okay, specifically, which errors are you talking about? And often they won't have one. And then you can ask, well, have you ever read the Bible? And 
most often they haven't. <laughs> so I, I think uh, you ask, have you ever specifically read the Bible? Do you have a specific? But sometimes they'll have an answer. Well, yeah, and, and like, give, let me give you for instance. Why does it say, and they're talking about the same story when David took a census. Why does it say in 2 Samuel 24 that the devil moved him to do that? And in 1 Chronicles 21, talking about the same story, it says God moved him to do that. Well, what's right, which is right? Well, at that point, you think it through. It's the book of Job. Yes, the devil was hitting Job with things, but he had to go before the throne of God first to get permission. So at the book of, end of the book, it says, God brought all that stuff upon Job. Did the devil do it? Yes. Did God? It says it. So, you know, there are ways where you get, well, where did Cain get his wife in Genesis chapter 4? Because, well, it doesn't say he got his wife in the land of Nod. It said he knew her there, had sexual relations with her there. So, again, get some good Bible commentaries. There are answers to these questions. One last question, and, and then we're done for today. But one, one more question would be, why should I believe the Bible? Isn't it fairy tales? Well, here, here's some response. First of all, there's a lot of archaeological evidence for the Bible. I mean, I saw it in the, at the uh, Jewish Museum in Jerusalem. They dug up a big stone slab that says Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea just like our New Testament says. I mean, they've unearthed things. A few years ago, a, a truck sunk in the street, and they found a, an ancient tomb, and they, they, they studied it. It was the tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest, who reigned and was part of the trial that put Jesus to death, just like the New Testament says. Um, some time ago, they found 15,000 tablets in Tel Mardik that mentions, mentions the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this would take five shows. There's lots of archaeological evidence that verifies the New and the Old Testament. Another reason I believe the Bible is true and not fairy tales, the incredible way the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. Psalm 22 was written 1000 BC. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people wonder why did Jesus say that on the cross 32 AD? And I think it's trying to get them to read their Old Testaments that I'm fulfilling this. It talks about a man having his hands and feet pierced. Crucifixion wasn't invented until 250 B.C., but 1,000 B.C., it's a prophecy of this man having his hands and feet pierced. I, I thirst. Uh, they're, they're casting lots for my garment, just like the, the Gospels say. So, or Psalm 50, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 53, talking about this man who will come and die for the sins of the nation. And, and, and again, there's all kinds of this stuff. The way the Old Testament is perfectly fulfilled in the New, it would take God to pull that off when those prophecies, some of them, were written 1,000 years B.C. Another way I, I know that the Bible is true is called the wealth of the manuscripts. Uh, there are, quote, there are approximately 5,500 copies in existence uh, that contain all or part of the New Testament. Although we do not possess the originals, we don't have Paul's original letter to the Romans, we do have very early copies. The New Testament was written about 50 to 90 A.D. The earliest fragments come from uh, uh, around 120 A.D., and that was written some time ago, and I think it's, they found things even more ancient than that. So um, those are some of the reasons I believe in, in the New Testament. Um, here's what F.F. F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, said. 
The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of the ancient classical authors, the authenticity of, authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be generally regarded as beyond all doubt. And again, he's making the point, the reason people don't want to believe in the New Testament is not because there is, isn't evidence. They don't want to bow the knee to Christ. Those are some of the things we can say to unbelievers when they question, well, is there any evidence for what you believe? There really is. Get a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, and it'll take you through much more that we didn't have time to handle today. Welcome to the portion of the pastor's study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of Scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with him. Pastor Brock, as long as we're talking about non-believers and mm -hmm. questions and that, I have got a couple more for you here. Okay. What about the people who have never heard about Christ? How can God send them to hell? Yeah. I've had that question. Yeah, that's a very popular question. Well, these people in Africa that never hear about Jesus, they all go to hell? Your God would send them these loving, uh, just, innocent people to hell. And there's a few answers to that. Number one, whatever God does will be fair. We don't have to worry about God being fair with the people in Africa. Whatever he decides to do with people that never hear the gospel will be fair. But I want to say a couple more things. Who are these innocent, loving people? We're all sinners. We all have that law of God written on our heart, and we all disobey it, so we're all in trouble. There is no indication in the New Testament that you can be saved apart from faith in Christ. So I think we better get those, those dear people missionaries. And, and you know, uh, one, one other thing, uh, Jackie, <laughs> often the person that asks that question is using it as a smokescreen. They're not really concerned about the lost people in Africa. It's their way of saying, God, uh, I, I, I don't think you're fair, therefore I'm not going to, you know, it, what you say is, okay, let God take care of the people in Africa. But the Bible is clear. You have heard about Christ, and you've rejected him. The Bible is clear what's going to happen to you unless you repent, and, and not to let them use it as a smokescreen. Shouldn't you also say to that person something to the effect that that's my sin, that that person hasn't Amen. heard about Christ? Amen. That's true, I too. I mean, because, yeah. you know, when people throw that out, yeah. who's to blame? It's yes. us, isn't it? We American Christians have more money than any other country on the planet. And the good news is we do send more missionaries than any other country in the world from the United States all over the world. That's the good news. The bad news is so many Christians are into this health and wealth gospel that is preached on the TV that if you believe hard enough, you're going to get lots of money and keep that money instead of giving it to missions. Okay, Pastor Brock, I've also heard people say that, you know, they're very moral. I have a good moral life. And isn't that all I need to go to heaven? Yeah. Because... But where's the distinction between what morality and Christianity is? Yeah. And if somebody were to say to me, well, you know, you're a Christian and I don't believe, but I'm just as moral as you, I'm just as good as you, I would say that's the problem. I'm not good. I'm not moral. I'm a sinner who has violated God's Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. I deserve to go to hell, and so do you. 
don't say you're as good as me. You don't want to be as good as me. You're as bad. You know, I deserve hell. And my only hope for salvation is God became a man, lived the perfect life I couldn't, died on the cross for my sins, and rose from the dead. And this whole thing about, well, as long as you lead a good life, if you're an atheist, Buddhist, Christian, you'll go to heaven. Nobody leads a good life, says Paul in Romans chapter 3. That person needs to read Romans chapter 3 about how we're all sinners and nobody's good in God's eyes. Okay, Pastor Brock, we've only got a little bit of time left, but the big question, I guess, that comes up when we talk about this with non-believers, you, if you get a non-believer to ask the big question, as far as I'm concerned, is, all right, how do I become a Christian? Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. our response Good. to that non-believer? That's so important, Jackie. And I remember the first time I was asked that question. I was 16 years old at a party. And don't know how to respond. Oh, I, I, I can tell you my exact words. I was 16 years old. This, this high school girl had been reading a book. I can even tell you the name of the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. It's all about the second coming of Christ. I don't agree with everything in the book, but... It, the good thing about the book is she was scared and she wanted to know where she was going to spend eternity. She comes up to me at the party, Tom, I hear you're a Christian. I've been reading a book and I want to become a Christian. How do I become a Christian? And my exact words were, uh, duh, um, but I, uh, I had no idea what to tell her. Now I know what I would tell her. And here's, if, if somebody comes to you and they want to become a Christian, here's what you do. You say, well, we're all sinners. God loved us so much that God sent his son. Jesus is God who came down in human flesh. He became a human being for 33 years. He never sinned once because he was God. He died on the cross to pay for mankind's sins, rose from the dead. The Bible promises you if you will turn and trust in Jesus and believe in him, you will be saved. That's, that, that's the gospel, Jackie. And that's what I should have said to that girl. I pray for her still now and then. But, but Tom, there's always that if. I mean they say, well, then what do I have to do? Uh-huh, okay. So, and I would say what Paul the, the in, in uh, Acts 16, the, the jailer who just saw the earthquake, and he's scared for his soul, says, Paul, uh, Silas, what must I do to be saved? And, and the apostle said, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean believe about, but it means you trust him, that you want him. And one way to do it is to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and you take control of my life. It's also important to get baptized because right after he, Paul told the, this jailer, uh, believe in Jesus, he got him baptized. So you need to get baptized in a good church. He and his whole family. That's what it, it says, yes. Right? <laughs> well, Pastor Brock, our program is out here to try to help people who have these questions. Mm -hmm. And we've expanded a little bit. Do you want to yes. just share a little bit? Yeah, everybody, we are now on nationally on DISH TV and Direct TV. If you have a friend that you want to see this program or, or any of our programs, go to pastorstudy.org, two S's, pastorstudy.org. You can watch our TV show just by pushing on the button of whatever show you want to watch. But also we're on nationally now. We've been in Minneapolis for almost 25 years. Pray for our ministry if you would. If the Lord nudges you to, to help uh, support our show, it's very expensive to be on nationally, but it's fun because we're getting people responding and people are coming to Christ through this. So just uh, go to pastorstudy.org. It'll show you how to support our ministry, and you can pray for us. Thanks, and God bless until we're together again next time. Thank you for watching The Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? 
you may do so at pastorstudy.org or write The Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always.